Have you ever wondered how diverse the world of fire really is? I mean, in the end, it's all just non-promixed combustion in turbulent buoyant flumes, where entrained air is mixed with some gaseous fuel and release energy within a chemical reaction. But yet, if you look at a matchstick, a candle flame, a wood creep, a building or a forest, it seems that these phenomena are completely different. And I often wondered what makes them differ so much from each other. What is the physical background of these fires and what really makes each of them unique at their scale? And this is the topic of today's episode and I have a fantastic guest to talk this over with. Um, she's a distinguished young scientist, recipient of the Early Career Award from International Association for Wildland Fire. She's burned thousands of wood creeps in her career and uh, participated in some research that has been praised as a paradigm shift in understanding wildland fires. And obviously we're going to discuss both of these topics today. Um, she's also very involved in growing the community through large outdoor fires and build environment workshops and working group of IFSS. And we're cordially inviting you to join that. Uh, so yeah. Let's welcome Dr. Sarah McAllister. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wigzinski and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Today I'm here with uh, Dr. Salah McAllister from US Forest Service. Hello, Sarah. Great to have you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, my number one requested guest finally here. I'm really hyped about that. <laughs> so Sarah is famous for her science related to combustion and, and combustion fundamentals and applying this research on, on fundamentals into practical world of fire engineering, especially wildfire <laughs> engineering. Can I say that? Wildfire engineering? Yeah. Probably not. I think it's okay. a thing. Let's call it a thing. It's a thing now. A thing, yeah. <laughs> it's a thing now. It, it, it's been coined here. <laughs> so so um, a good place to start is a quote from Hotel, from paper from Guillermo Rain, who were who praising your research. And the quote was, a case have been made for fire being next to the life processes, the most complex phenomena to understand. And I absolutely agree trying to learn, learn fire and flame. And uh, I guess, what are your thoughts about is, is fire easy <laughs> well, for you? Of course not. I mean, it is just even fire alone. I mean, it's, it's heat transfer, it's combustion, it's fluid dynamics. It's a lot of really difficult engineering topics all rolled into one. And then to make it even worse, there's wildland fire, which combines forest ecology and you know, the way that plants live and grow and photosynthesize to really get into like the nitty gritty of how a wildland fire works. So uh, yeah, it makes <laughs> it, it adds even more layers of complexity on top of it. So yeah, no, definitely not easy. I call it job security though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even without topography and wind, probably it's right. already crazy. And yes. once you add these little complexities into the equation, it, it turns a little bit more complex. Yes. So I, I had this uh, idea for, for this interview, like I have a top combustion scientist in front of me. So let's talk about how combustion affects fire and fire engineering. And I would love to walk with you through the scales of of fires, because as someone who has done 
experiments on the, on my tabletop, experiments in my lab, and burnt buildings. I mean, it's all shiny and produces the smoke, but behaves in a quite different manner. And I assume uh, within outdoor fires, it's it's the same. Let's start with the smallest scales. Um, let's think about a, a match fire or, or a candle flame. You know, mm-hmm. what what would you say are are the phenomena that the, the simplest phenomena that would drive these fires? Well, I think that also depends on which way you're holding the match, right? Because okay, if you're yes. <laughs> holding <laughs> the one. match where the the you know it's burning from the top down, you're going to get a very different yeah. process than if you're holding the match upside down and trying to not burn your fingertips, or even holding it sideways so that the flame propagates kind of horizontally across it, right? Um, and so there, it, much like a candle, there's a lot of processes going on, right? You need to transfer heat to unburnt fuel, to pyrolyze the fuel. That fuel then has to mix with air and ignite, you know, the typical process. And But, you know, how that heat is transferred really depends on the, the direction that that flame is propagating, right? So mm-hmm. if it's if it's downward, uh, you can't, the, the, uh, the unburnt fuel can't necessarily quote, air quotes on C, the flame, right? So radiation <laughs> isn't going to be very important for downward spread. Um, you're talking much more about, you know, you're conducting some of that heat through the solid. You're also doing some gas phase conduction or convection. Um, you're kind of probably splitting hairs at that point, right? Because you, the no, velocity isn't zero, but it's pretty minimal. So is it conduction or is it convection <laughs> in the gas phase? Um, but, you know, if you hold that match upside down and that flame is propagating upwards, you have a lot more um, opportunity for you know, radiant heat from that flame to mm-hmm. heat up the unburnt fuel to spread that fire. Uh, but you still have, you know, conduction to the solid phase and you still have some convective heating. So the as that match stick gets bigger and bigger or as those flames get bigger and bigger, that compl- the balance between what is dri- driven by convection versus radiation is going to change. Right. And that's. Mm. That's that complex problem of scaling. When I was preparing for the interview, I was trying to think out of a fire problem in which convection would play the dominant role. And I actually couldn't figure one where it could be like the dominant for the um, flame spread in a small scale, let's say. But I figured out that uh, once you introduce heat sinks to the equation, conduction be- can become the driving force. So suddenly you have all three ways of heat transfer, how you produce it, how it goes away, playing a, a significant role, even at the small scale, right? Yeah, and certainly the thickness of the fuel can change how those all, all three of those balance, of right? Course. Because if you've got a yeah. thermally thick fuel versus a thermally thin fuel, that role of convection or conduction, pardon me, is going to be a little bit different. Um, but you know what's yeah. really interesting about wildland fire um, it's the importance of convection, right? Because as you mentioned, the heat sinks, uh, very thin, fine fuels like a pine needle. If you're trying to talk about spread from one pine needle to the next, uh, you really need to consider um, convection heat transfer, both in terms of heating and cooling, right? If you were to put mm-hmm. a clump of pine needles in front of just a pure radiant you know, heat exposure, say, you know, you stick, have a radiant heater that's 40 kilowatts per meter squared of, of radiant heat flux, and you put a clump of pine needles in front of it, nothing's going to happen because of convective uh, heat transfer. Like away from like... Because of away, right? It'll cool. Um, even just by natural convection, there's enough um, airflow for those fine little fuels to, to cool off against something, even like a 40 kilowatt per meter squared heat flux. 
Um, and conversely, uh, they, those pine needles heat up very quickly to convective heat transfer if you've got some kind of flame contact, right? So you know, the context of the fuel really matters too in terms of if you're talking about big surfaces that are going to be much more receptive to radiant heat transfer and not so sensitive to any kind of convective cooling versus very small fuels uh, like pine needles, you know, especially when they're dangling in air in a tree canopy. Uh, they're going to be very sen very sensitive to convective cooling, and any little breeze or even just natural convection can cool them down from a pretty significant radiant heat flux. Okay, so here your airstream, uh, because your object is so small, like a match or a needle, it just goes e either is there and goes around it, or doesn't uh, is, it does not exist. Let's let's go a bigger scale. Let's go item scale, single single burning item, a wood creep, uh, an armchair. Uh, and here, uh, there are different ways the air can go, not only above and and below your item. And this is uh, this was also a significant part of your research, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're talking about a big impenetrable surface like a sofa or something, right? I mean, you're not going to mm -hmm. get really much in the way of airflow through it, right? Mm -hmm. Very different yeah. from, say, like a wood crib where you have a, a porous fuel bed and you can get a lot more opportunity for airflow through it, which you know, makes the, the fuel bed kind of burn much more uniformly, right? You can get in-depth burning in something like a crib, but, you know, a, a couch is kind of going to likely burn from the outside in, right? Just because there's not mm -hmm. enough air in them, uh, in it. So, you know, when you when you're able to burn something like a porous fuel bed, you're going to get a lot of, you know, radiant heat transfer within the fuel bed that's going to help drive it. Certainly convective heat transfer from the burning elements, hitting other burning elements, um, and so that makes that kind of process uh, much more complicated and also a lot more interesting. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we will come back to the wood creeps. I, I have like 72 questions about wood creeps here because I'm passionate about burning wood creeps and I want to <laughs> do it the best. <laughs> yes, who, who doesn't like wood creep, right? And uh, uh, But here, okay, so far we, we are at the item scale and here's uh, still just the fire. Let's 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 put the item in the compartment, mm -hmm. and suddenly the physics changes. The fact it is in a compartment and means it's constrained by the walls, by the openings. Suddenly, it's not just a buoyant plume and flame. Suddenly, it's a smoke layer that has some temperature radiates hit downwards. So your heat fluxes are not just the ones that are within the, the source itself, but suddenly the fuel, the ones that's burning, the one that is not burning, is like completely surrounded by, if you may, if you will, uh, by the radiation and, yes. and heat being transferred around. And uh, suddenly the behavior of your wood creep, of your sofa, placed within the compartment will be completely different than one outdoors or in your wind tunnel, right? Certainly, yeah. And, I, you know, the other thing is, you know, as everything gets scaled up and bigger and bigger, you're dealing with a lot more turbulence, which is making your flames thicker, which is making them sootier, which is making radiation be much more dominant of a, of a heat transfer mechanism as well. So, I mean, all that's at play here as well, too. Yeah, when you think about the classical theories for compartment fires and you go into work of Thomas and then Haramathy uh, and now what Jose Torero is, is, is doing. There was this way to, to, to separate this into two regimes. One where it's like um, ventilation driven. So 
you have this amount of air that can penetrate your compartment and that pretty much dictates the amount of heat being um, produced in the fire. And in this, let's say we have this more or less solved, maybe not completely, but we feel pretty comfortable for the last 30 years with this type of fires. And then there's the other regime in which you have more than a sufficient amount of the air and uh, the processes inside are in a way chaotic, like um, they depend on where the air is, where it can flow, where it burns. It's very complex. The temperatures are lower. And this this is very, very complex, very difficult to describe with simple empirical uh, model. Such a model does not exist. And if I remember correctly, Howard Emmons said it's, it's going to happen around 2050. And then Jose said he's not so optimistic about it. So <laughs> if these two guys are, are not sure if we can solve it, that's a powerful problem. But I was wondering, like, in this case, the interior of the compartment is uh, very like similar to the interior of your wood grip because it's always also how deep can the air go into it, right? Yes. Yeah. So it, as you were talking, I was, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is so, like so cool that there is such a... The, the analogy is very similar to wood cribs, right? Because there's the same two regimes of wood cribs, right? So if they're okay. very dense, the airflow just can't penetrate them very effectively. And so they're ventilation limited as well. Mm. So as you, if you were to, you know, widen the spacing in the cribs and make them more and more open and loosely packed, then you get this transition to a, a different behavior. And so there's there's two different relationships to predict behavior uh, mm. for a wood crib just based on those relationships as well. Um, what's interesting is that the open fuel bed configuration in a, in a wood crib is actually a lot more predictable than in a, uh, compartment really? fire. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. uh, yeah, cause at that point, um, they basically just assume that the, the elements of the crib are, are burning at the individual rate given a, you know, particular mm -hmm. like external heat flux. So, um, it becomes only proportional to the, the, uh, the diameter of the, the fuel particle, um, but when okay. it's when it's confined, then there's a lot more variables about how the airflow can get in through get in through there, and that's that's actually the challenging regime. You know, wood crib is trying to figure out what happens when the airflow is restricted, how much air gets through, and what how that changes um, the burning behavior. Okay, let's go bigger. Let's exit the compartment. <laughs> Let let's take a giant Christmas tree and place it outside because for some reason fire engineers are very passionate about you're burning not only wood cribs but also Christmas trees. <laughs> Have you have you burned a Christmas tree? I have not yet my you first. Know, I have not burned a Christmas tree. Is that Oh like, my god, we're in a club. <laughs> I know, but it's like I work for the Forest Service. I've studied wildland fire and have not burned a Christmas tree. It's it's almost yeah, a it's, sin. <laughs> we're both uh, earning our living burning up things and we have not burned a Christmas tree. <laughs> I I hope to graduate to a Christmas tree though. Very soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I I'm gonna burn one uh, in in my in my lab this year. Probably need treat for statistical <laughs> reasons <laughs> and fun. <laughs> yeah, just but uh, yeah, but, but let's imagine a, a giant object such as a, a tree. And in the green room before we we've entered, uh, you told me that trees, uh, the Christmas tree, don't look like that in the forest. And there there is something to that. Uh, how would a single item like what, what would drive the, the, the fire of like a single giant tree? Well, so that's a good question, right? Because I, as I was talking about, you know, like a, a single pine needle versus a clump of pine needles is going to mm -hmm. be, you know, a very different context because now you have arrays of fine fuels. And so certainly when you're talking about, you know, a, a fire that's transitioning from a, a surface fire, so just burning onto the ground 
into a crowd fire, you're, you are igniting it from the bottom up. So you do have your, mm -hmm. your candlestick analogy where, you know, things are going to be bathed in flame as it goes up. Uh, and so and because of the context of the, the needles, um, you're going to get a lot of that convective uh, heat transfer from flame contact as that tree kind of, they call it torching, right? You torch a tree from the bottom mm -hmm. up. But when you have, you know, a big spreading crown fire, you know, you have much more of a horizontal propagation, right? So that's kind of a little bit different context. And often there is a ton of radiation. And for the longest time, we've always just assumed that it was radiation that was driving these fires um, because, you know, it's it's certainly igniting some of the downed logs that are down mm -hmm. on the ground because they're bigger. Surface. And it's just a huge number. And it's just a huge number. And, you know, especially as people like that's what we feel when we stand next to a fire is the yeah. radiant heat flux. Right. So it, it, we just sort of like naturally apply that to a pine needle. But, you know, we're still looking at that same process of, you know, uh, those dangling pine needles in the air are going to be very sensitive to any kind of cooling from convective heat transfer. So you still need that flame contact, but it happens in a very uh, interesting way um, because of the way that the, the flames have to come. Essentially, they have to come down and forward into the fuel bed, which doesn't make any sense when you've got big buoyant plumes that mm -hmm. on Earth with gravity that want to go up. Right. So, yes. so that's always been kind of the crux of trying to figure out how convection can be important in wildland fire is how can it go forward and down to, to keep igniting the fuels. And it turns out that there's some really cool fluid dynamic instabilities in, in flames that create um, turbulent structures that actually do force uh, the flames down and forward into the fuel bed. Um, it's it's. Uh, I, I wish I could like draw pictures. <laughs> I know it's. Uh, this no. makes the podcasting hard. You have to describe it with words. <laughs> yes, I, I know. Uh, so, but what's really interesting is one of the things that our group had kind of really. Um, I hate to say the word discovered because it's something that is so totally obvious now that we've pointed it out. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you hand a kindergartner a crayon and you ask them to draw a fire, they're going to draw these peaks and troughs, right? It's going to be a jaggedy yeah. edge thing, right? And But yeah. those jaggedy edge, you know, flames are actually very important to the way that the heat is transferred because the stuff that goes on in the, the troughs of those jaggedy peak mm -hmm. flames is actually where all the action is happening. And you can actually get that convective heat transfer that goes down and forward into the fuel bed. So, uh yeah, so it's like it's a really complex problem you're talking about. So if you like put a row of uh, fire science show logos next to each other, you will obtain this uh, yes. this uh, <laughs> this <laughs> pattern of of peaking flames and 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 uh, holes between them. Yes, and yeah. th this is what you observe. But please don't worry about uh, observing things that are obvious. I, I had this time at the tunneling conference where. I, I've told people that after a hundred years of observing that the fire scientists realized that when we blow air on fires in tunnels, they grow. And <laughs> that, that was our discovery and people had a good laugh from that. But it really is like that. We just start considering the effects of longitudinal ventilation on, on tunnel fires and making them bigger, not just uh, the ability to remove smoke from, <laughs> from right. a tunnel. Yeah, yeah. So looking at things that are in front of your eyes and actually understanding it in a completely different way than yeah. everyone before you understood that's like that's uh, the eureka moment and i yeah. and i i uh, wish every listener in the, in the audience of fire science show to have this eureka moment in their life because it's 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 like it's this thing clicks in your brain and nothing is the same 
anymore again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, you've always seen this phenomenon and you have never considered it being uh, the mechanism that may be the driving force of these fires. Yeah. And now, uh, by looking at the video, it's like, oh, oh yeah. it's obvious. It's Well, I think it, it became obvious only because we were we did a whole bunch of experiments where we got rid of every other variable ever, right? I mean, because most okay. people, when you see these things, they're out in the field or, you know, you're doing wind tunnel tests where you've got like, you know, uh, pine needles spread across the table. But, you know, you always kind of blow them off because you're like, well, there's clumps of fuel. So what we're seeing must be a result of there being clumpiness in the fuel, no matter how, you know, tr smooth we try to make it, there's always clumps. So we always, we always saw them, but, you know, it wasn't really recognized that it was a fluid dynamics thing and not just because the, flu the fuels were clumpy or something, you know? Okay, we'll go deep into it. First, okay. um, <laughs> actually, you know what? In your PNAS, in the, in the paper uh, first authored by Mark Finney, and mm -hmm. uh, congratulations to him for <laughs> first authoring this magnificent paper, yeah. and you're, you're one of the authors in this paper, at the site of the PNAS, there's a bunch of videos from your experiments and they're excellent to watch. So I'm what I'm going to do is I'm going to link in the show notes awesome. the link to the paper and uh, link to the videos. And I think the paper is in open access, but if you cannot access it, I will help you steal that. So come Perfect. to me, I'll, I'll help you get it. And uh, for those who don't want to go that far and click a link in the, uh, of a video, the mechanism we're talking about is that uh, the fire in, in a forest, because we now enter the forest, Sorry. is not uh, a wall of fire like you would see in Lord of the Rings movie. However, the physics made it uh, move like that as well, probably in the movies. But it's not just a continuous wall of fire with the same height. It's like you will have a part of it that's very like high flame and then you will have part where the, the fire is almost non-existent it's like down bottom and uh, they change because as the fire moves one grows bigger the other grows uh, slower and by this movement they force this let's say push of air that pushes the flame against the surface in front of it like if the fire was breathing breathing flame in a way and this mechanism despite the fact that the fire must and the, the hot air must move upwards because of the buoyancy it's the mechanism that that actually forces that this hot air this flame to go like slightly to the front half meter to the front how how much did you observe it move by one poof well so that's actually research we're still doing <laughs> <laughs> so okay that's yes. exciting <laughs> how far forward those flame excursions go and what temperature they're at so that we can kind of mm -hmm. help kind of put some sideboards on how that convective heating is happening but uh it's it's the mechanism that uh as you mentioned radiation may not be the the main well radiation is certainly helpful because you're preheating your fuel so it's very very ready to be ignited right and as soon as you remove this cooling effect of of the cold air surrounding the needle or the fuel in general and replace it with hot uh flame and um and and products of combustion then suddenly uh the magic happens and your needle ignites and on the scale of the forest this is what uh moves it forward and now, uh, okay, you, you've set your forest on fire. That's not very nice, but let's go with it. Hey, it could be a good thing. It could be a good thing. That's it true. That's true. Thing. So that that's another, this is probably another soapbox topic. You, well, this. you told me we're not allowed to talk about fire <laughs> management. So let's. <laughs> but this is ecology. This is yeah, fire, fire that's, ecology. That's is a lot of the forest, particularly in the Western part of the U.S., evolved with fire, right? So. Yeah. 
they need fire to you know thrive mm. and exist. It's and a it's natural, natural process. Yeah. It's a natural process that it evolved with. So, you know, fire isn't necessarily a bad thing in our forests. It just needs to be the right kind of fire at the right time. Yeah, I, I think this this subject is something uh, I, I have never considered it like this until I've met people like like you, like Professor Rain, like Professor Stuf. Uh, once I've realized what they really say, it really like clicked again this moment that it's obvious it's in front of your eyes. If uh, we allow the ecosystem to follow its natural, let's say, circle of life. Mm -hmm. We're not going to have this uh, once in a thousand year fires every month, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the first that's just okay. that's just been ignited because now the fire is quite big. And what's fascinating for me in, in let's say, wildfires is that the terrain and the wind yes. will play such a tremendous role in where the fire will go. So if you have the exact same forest, exact same source of ignition, on, a, let's say, top of a hill, bottom of the hill, this will be two completely different fires. Yeah. If you have it in California where you have the wind, the Santa Ana wind from the hills to the ocean, and if you will have it on the other side of the same mountains, it's going to be a completely different fire, right? Yeah. So what's driving the fire then? Because it, it starts to seem it's being the external conditions that start to take the, the driver's seat. Right. So it's very interesting because this is one of, they, they call it the fire behavior triangle, right? So this is something that is so fundamental to wildland fire, you know, that it's it's the fuels, weather, and topography that drive wildland fire. That's our, that's the other fire triangle, right? Uh, you know, so we all know that a fire will spread faster uphill um, or it'll spread faster in a canyon. We know it spreads faster mm. when the wind blows. But, you know, the funny thing is, is we still haven't been able to, exactly explain why because we've argued about those mechanisms of heat transfer for so long for so long yeah <laughs> so you know i mean there's there's some of the, the more obvious explanations of you know when the wind blows the flame tilts over so you're preheating your fuels faster right so whether or not that's because of radiation or convection has been you know argued about still mm -hmm. <laughs> so same thing with the uphill right as a big fire that spreads faster uphill the flames kind of start tilting over because of the, you know, the relationship, the angle with gravity, mm. right? And then at some point, if your slope is steep enough, it will actually attach. Um, and this is something um, that I think was studied in depth um, after, say, like the um, the King's Cross fire, as you can okay. get that flame yes, attachment. Yes, you're right. It's a similar process of where you get this, like, all of a sudden the flame just sucks down to the surface and then you can get, like, crazy fast fires. And again, you know, the argument of whether or not the crazy fast fire spread is because of radiation or convection, still ongoing and still debated. Um You know, a lot of it has to do with that context, like I said, of the size of the fuel, whether or not you're talking pine needles that are suspended mm -hmm. in the air or you're talking about, you know, wooden steps or something. Right. It's very different. <laughs> in terms of inclination, I'm I'm actually going to link a PhD thesis of Professor Mike Goldner ah. because I found I found it really good. And the fact he did his PhD on the matchsticks yep. adds additional yep. <laughs> beauty to that. And uh, yeah, props to uh, props to Mike. <laughs> and um, and what about the wind? Because the wind is a is a phenomenon, is a natural phenomenon. When I talk with the fellow uh, fire engineers, and uh, they they usually tend to replace wind with some like just flat uh, velocity inlet of a certain velocity. I always tell them this is as if we just replaced uh, the whole complexity of a fire with a single temperature value. 
which actually we do. But, <laughs> but both of these concepts are are, are equally horrible. Yeah. And wind is wind is a phenomenon. And uh, what's fascinating about wind is that it's uh, the wind at the surface is is the outcome of the interplay at the upper levels of the atmosphere. So it does not necessarily uh, be stable. It rarely is stable. So right. it changes the directions. I know that the real difficulty in modeling the um, the wildfires, mm-hmm. the wildland fires. If you if you had the constant wind and the same slope, you would probably figure out an average velocity. Actually, that's probably what the Rothermel's model would give you, more or less. Yeah, and uh, and your game, you're, you you solve the problem. <laughs> but your topography is rarely like just uphill, and your wind is never a constant uh, value that would be unified in the space. So I I think this is something that brings you additional challenge to to what you're trying to model. I mean, do do you also uh, research that or maybe take it into account where re- when researching the fundamental scales of the combustion? Or Well, so there are certainly some that have been working on, um, you know, what that wind pro- profile looks like, right? Because mm-hmm. as you say, it's not steady and it's also dependent on the vegetation on the ground, right? Because... You you that you ultimately care about the wind that's hitting the flames, right? So the you, okay. you're talking about the wind very very close to the surface of the ground, right? So mm-hmm. that same wind in a field of grass is going to be different than that wind when it hits, say, a, a tree canopy. And so how that wind profile changes when it hits those obstacles and how it decreases or accelerates if it goes back into the open is certainly a, a huge challenge in trying to figure out how to do modeling a fire spread. You know, there's, you want to talk about scale issues too, is when fires get big enough, they can actually make their own wind. <laughs> so yeah. that's a whole nother like can of worms to have to deal with, right? Um, and that can totally have t- very different feedbacks on how that fire burns is when it when it starts making its own weather. That, that's what I wanted to touch uh, as the final act in the <laughs> in the journey through scales. Because we're we're entering the, the mega fires when the wind is a product. What's happening in the upper layers of the atmosphere? But at some point, the fire can enter the upper layers of atmosphere with the with the buoyant plume. And when it does, it starts to be quite, let's say, unfunny. I mean, it's a, it's absolutely um, like if you're a fire scientist and you read about the physics of mega fires, it is fascinating. Like it, yeah. it's like absolutely fascinating. But at the same time, these are the moments where, where people actually die. Mm-hmm. This these are the most horrible fires we had. One of such fires in Poland in 1992, oh. it was in a forest called Kuźnia Raciborska. It was a, a fire created by a train. A train was uh, stopping and it was producing oh. a lot of uh, a lot of metal sparks uh, flying into a forest. And it ignited a quite a significant part of a, of a forest at the middle of a very dry season. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of firefighters were went inside to fight the fire. And then, unfortunately, the all the elements clicked for a mega fire because you need to have a certain stability of the atmosphere to allow this fire to uh, affect the upper layers of the atmosphere. They had the weather, like uh, almost no movement is actually the best weather for such yeah. a thing to happen because no movement can be replaced by the movement by the fire. And I have colleagues who have attended this fire and they told me it was like... A, 
a firestorm, like truly the, the air started burning, the fire was everywhere and you had literally seconds to hide because you know it was coming. And in the pictures, you can see a lot of like trees being broken and fires do not bring trees. It's wind that does break trees and the wind was created by the fire. So in a way, the fire has created, let's say, a local hurricane like Mm -hmm. effect in this region. And and, uh, unfortunately, two two of uh, the firefighters have lost their lives in this fire. And this this events happen happen yeah they, they, these types of fires happen over over the world especially lately where we allow this accumulation of the fuel yeah. in, in in forests and if the all the elements click you you get this very very nasty nasty physics and you know what I, I've learned from about this the most there's a scientific report by Pitts from NIST, mm. uh, who's touching the post-war yep. fire research, yep. like nuclear wars, and how can a nuclear warhead create a fire to destroy a city? Don't need a nuclear fire to do it. We unfortunately figured it out in World War II. But also, uh, in, in, um, well, it was not war fire, but it was post-earthquake fire, if I'm not wrong, in, in, in Japan, yeah. the Great Kanto Fire. There was yeah. a, also a, a huge fire well yeah, that destroyed a, a whole uh, prefecture. So uh, what's happening there? So, so, so eventually, it's the fire driving itself. So yeah. it's no longer external yeah. things. It's, it's the fire itself, right? Right. So, you know, one of the things... So we've learned a lot from, like you mentioned, that research into how to totally level cities, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but, you know, the same kind of things happens in wildland fire, as you mentioned, as, as fuels accumulate, you get a lot of stuff that burns for a very long time. Our normal concept of wildland fire being just a line fire that moves through and propagates, ignites fuels, they burn quickly because they're the fine fuels, then they go out. So that, that kind of a concept, how we normally idealize a wildland fire, falls apart. And so mm. if you get fuels that burn for a very long time, you start getting bigger and bigger areas that are generating heat and burning simultaneously, much like what was happening. But we unfortunately figured out how to do in Dresden. So you, you're able to get a, a, a long duration burning, which is a, which allows for the sort of spin up of this atmospheric thing to happen. Right. So mm. you get a really wide area. You get a really wide plume of smoke above it. And so wide plumes i mean you're you inevitably need to entrain some fresh air as a plume rises right exactly so the the plume removes the air turns it into smoke let's say right. and and removes it from the place so something must come into its place right and if you removed 1 million cubic meters of air right. you need 1 million of cubic meters of fresh air right. from somewhere and it's just going to suck it from it's from the wherever. surroundings yeah. right yeah so and and as the plume is wider and wider it's it's actually less and less effective at in training the air up in the atmosphere so mm-hmm. it has to come in from down on the ground as you mentioned so it's pulling all of that mm-hmm. air that's going to re- replacement air to replace the stuff that would normally kind of try to get, you know, entrained into the plume, all is coming in, in on the ground now. And that's that fire-induced wind that, you know, can turn it into a total firestorm. Uh, and, you know, sometimes like in Dresden and uh, in um, the that great earthquake fire in Japan. The Kanto fire, yeah. The Kanto fire, yeah. If you get any kind of like flow blockage so that that entrained air starts coming in at an angle, you start rotating the whole bloody thing. 
Okay. And that's when you can get, you know, that whole like real true firestorm where you get that rotation in there that makes it even worse. I'm not sure if you know that research. I don't think it's widely known, but there was an experiment on this in the 80s in, in France where they have used 1000 megawatt fire source as the source in their experiment. They were burning like this, let's say, house-sized heptane burners uh, over an area of one square kilometer to see if they can create an artificial will, like you just explained. Well, I think luckily for them, they did not uh, create the whole world, (laughs) but they have observed the the beginning of this uh, spinning motion. Mm -hmm of the mass of the air surrounding. It was like 1,000 megawatts. Like yeah, yeah. When I started calculating how much I would have to spend on diesel uh, to, to to create a 1,000 megawatt fire, I was like, okay, and we're, we're not repeating that and the environmental people would not be happy uh, about this, <laughs> this scale of an experiment. But yeah, that, yeah. I, I'm going to link it to the show notes. I think it's an open access and, uh, oh, cool. and that was that's probably the biggest uh, fire experiment anyone has ever conducted and around that same area time and time the u.s was experimenting a lot with it too so there was a they called it project oh, okay. flambeau flambeau uh and they okay. were also trying to figure out this whole mega fire thing and so the, i don't i can't remember okay. the numbers we'll have to go back and look it up but yeah they were piling huge areas of like juniper bushes over a huge area in the middle of the no middle of nowhere and trying to get that same same thing uh the guy Countrymen and Project Flambeau. I think a lot of that stuff has been declassified. I'm 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 gonna fi- I'm gonna find it and I'm gonna link it in the show notes if I can. And uh, for some odd reason, I want the French to lose. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we don't know what was researched in Soviet Russia that much. Yeah. So uh, may- maybe they were burning something even bigger. So we've uh, from a matchstick where. You determine the flame regime by turning it up or down through a compartment where the feedback from your obstacles is deciding into a fire where the uh, odd puffing motion will be determining up to a mega fire where the fire is determining itself and uh, you've suddenly lost control. It's uh, and it's still uh, essentially the same thing, you know, it's a turbulence transfer of air into a fuel mixture and just burning a, a super tiny interface between them that creates all this all this noise. It's kind of fascinating. <laughs> Ultimately, the combustion still happens on millimeter scales, but now yeah. we're talking about kilometers, you know. Okay, so um, let's go back to some something more pragmatic because I, I really enjoyed uh, your research on, on wood creeps. And it's not only that I am, I love burning wood creeps like every fire engineer does, and wood creeps are essential tool for our um, engineering. You were obviously researching that to understand um, the roles of fuel geometries in, in, in the fires better. But for me, it's a very practical paper on how to design wood creeps better. And uh, I actually can, can see now how important the, the, the design of the, the, the source is actually, because the effects you've described in your paper were quite profound. Maybe you can bring us a little c- closer to like what you've done and what you found, because I, I found it uh, fascinating and I wanted to hear it from you. Okay, so 
you know, this started eight, nine years ago when we were, you know, sitting around the lab kind of puzzling, okay, well, how can we describe how a particular fuel bed in a wildland fire burns, right? Whether or not we're Mm -hmm. talking about tree canopies or the pine needles on the ground and basically decided that like, you know, we can't study the real fuel because it's too complicated, right? There's just so Mm -hmm. much variability that we can't see the forest through the trees to use an analogy Mm -hmm. there, right? Like we can't, we can't figure out the processes because we just, there's so much, you know, variability from one tree to the next, right? So we need... You need a more reputable tree, so you've jumped it down yes. into a crib. We dropped it down to a crib. And, you know, we were like, well, hey, look, there's all this literature in the fire protection engineering using mm-hmm. wood cribs, right? Because, you know, they're used so often as ignition sources, as you know, and there's this, these great papers back from the 60s that kind of came up with this beautiful theory with the two different regimes and mm-hmm. ways of predicting it. But then you start digging into the, the papers and, you know, they're... The, the cribs that they used were were very um, sort of, they were all cubic. They were all looked like perfect little cubes, right? So they all mm-hmm. had a perfect ratio of lengths of 10 times their thickness and the, the 10 and with the same amount of layers. So they, they came out perfect mm-hmm. cubes. And so obviously the first question is, well, what happens when it's not a cube? Do these relationships still hold? So that was where we started was just playing around with what we thought was going to be a simple project of, oh, let's just, throw some different things at it and see what happens, right? <laughs> and uh, so we started building cribs of a wide different a wide different geometries, right? So things that were mm-hmm. short and fat or tall and skinny, looks like chimneys, just to see if that uh, the, those typical relationships uh, held, right? Uh, and discovered along the way that sometimes is the answer. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, so it turns out when the, the fuels get thin relative to their their length. So basically, if you've got thin fuels in a, a wide kind of area, um, the typical okay. relationships in, in the literature don't hold real well. Um, okay. But there is, so I mean, these are the ones by um, by, by Gross, by um, Block, um, you know, the, the kind of the fundamental ones that everybody kind of, at the Heskestad, the fundamental ones that everybody kind of relies mm-hmm. on. And they work great if as long as you kind of stay towards the, the cubic side, side of cribs. Um, so if you start building your cribs out of, um, say like one millimeter diameter sticks, uh, it gets a little messy, right? Especially if you're making them 10 centimeters long or even longer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it turns out that there is a little known correlation, um, by Thomas that actually works really well for all of them. Um, but it doesn't, uh, clearly delineate those cool two regimes of, you know, densely packed fuel beds versus loosely packed fuel beds. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a little more uncomfortable to use because you can't, you know, calculate a crib porosity and say it's going to burn like this. Okay. But it works well. But along the way, we also noticed that the burning behavior is very sensitive to how far off the ground it is. Right. So there had been only a little bit of work in Block's PhD thesis that looked at that the distance between the crib and the ground and how that affects things. Uh, Turns out it's a lot bigger (laughs) difference, particularly for those uh, fuel beds that are, you know, say short and squat or made of thinner fuel elements. So that was a whole nother Mm -hmm. line of work that we did where we were looking at the effect of the distance up, uh, you know, the height off the ground of the fuel bed. Um, and found that it, you do have to lift it up quite a bit higher than we thought in order for that to not be a variable, to not restrict the airflow through the fuel bed. Because it turns out that the airflow coming from underneath is a huge uh, 
a huge driving uh, factor in how uh, how a crib burns. So from there, I mean, we have tried to answer all sorts of questions like what happens um, if you have like a, a wind or a forced ventilation. We've looked at moisture content. We've even tried to answer some of those questions about those, you know, those huge mega fires, right? And the, the mm-hmm. um, restriction of the plume entrainment above it, how that influences, how that has a feedback into the burning underneath. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've in some ways sadly spent uh, like eight or nine years spurting <laughs> cribs at, with um, probably thousands of cribs at this point, um, which is why I say I hope to graduate to trees. <laughs> so, but I've, like I said, I've learned yeah. a lot about that, you know, how the flow through the fuel bed affects how it burns and how important, um, particularly the flow from underneath can be. So, you know, that's really important information for trying to predict, um, say, crown fire behavior and how a crown fire will burn versus a surface fire will burn where you don't have, you know, airflow that can come underneath. What, uh, what I found fascinating about this work was that uh, you found that uh, when the fuel was thinner, the actually more wind there was, the, the decreased uh, flame spread and with thicker fuel it increased. So it's not like, uh, oh. it's. Uh, I would expect it always increases the... the so the spread velocity. That was a really some really interesting and somewhat frustrating um, paper and experiment set of experiments, right? Because we we wanted to know the effect of wind and how wind mm-hmm. would you know change things, right? Because it makes sense that particularly if you've got a densely packed fuel bed that's ventilation limited, it should make sense that if you if you can get more air into it, it'll burn better because it's you know better. There's a better mixture. You propagate the flame inside, right? Right. In a way. And so, I mean, the obvious first choice would be to put them in one of our wind tunnels and burn them, right? Uh, But Mm -hmm. it turns out that some of the results were kind of dependent on the actual experiment setup and the way that the wind would either go through it or around it, depending on the density of the fuel bed. So we weren't, in effect, able to control the amount of flow through the fuel bed because we had this, you know, external effect of it being, you know, a crib in a wind tunnel and the flow mm-hmm. goes where it goes. You know, that was kind of the, the you know, the, the key finding there is that when the fuels were thin, it created enough flow resistance so that the wind went around the fuel bed instead of through it. And so that's, you know, kind of the explanation of, you know, why we saw kind of that unexpected result. But this is, uh, this is fascinating because you found uh, that the role of the aerodynamics of your fuel source, and I don't mean the internal aerodynamics, but just, let's say, the bluff body aerodynamics oh. is key to the way how generally air can be transported inside yeah. the fuel where it can be burned. And you will see the same phenomenon in a wildfire because it's also here where your uh well you have very flat and let's say um aerodynamically uniform uh source <laughs> yeah. but regardless it's uh the aerodynamics will 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 determine how deep it goes but outside of the forests in your paper you've mentioned the uh tunnels that uh, you've observed similar effects in like experiments done by tunnel fire scientists. And when I think about it, it's also like, wow, it, it truly was like, uh, in a way like that. And it's uh, it's very frustrating to knowing now what you've found to look at these experiments, because here you've exposed 
a source of uncertainty that can change, let's say, one or two significant digits in the experiment. Like you can turn a 20 megawatt fire into a 100 megawatt fire if you if you do the aerodynamics well, and it is not necessarily even the factor of the wind velocity in, uh, in your tunnel. It can be just this actually alignment of the of the way how air can go around the object and not. Yeah. Similarly, how far up off the ground you prop it up. If you allow the air to come in from underneath, you're going to have a different burning behavior than if you block it off. Oh, you, you must be really good at setting up barbecues. This, this, kind, <laughs> this kind of knowledge is like priceless at, at the grill party. <laughs> but it's also frustrating because then it's like, you know, we have all of these standardized tests that rely on, you know, crypts mm. as, you know, your, your heat input to the whole compartment or, you know, whether or not you're testing the flammability of decks or something. It's, but, you know, we have to be very careful that how to, to build the crib as is intended and burn it as an intended, because if you miss something critical, like, oh, it, you know, putting it straight on the deck or lifting it up off the deck, you can get different answers. Mm. And then your yeah. heat input is not the same as you would expect. When when reading this um, this paper, I was thinking about where in fire engineering we could actually um, use this like crib research. And one thing that came to my mind was informal settlements because these densely packed uh, arrays of small buildings are similar to your densely or loosely packed wood, wood cribs because these buildings are fairly easy to ignite. They produce large amounts of heat very quickly. There probably is, again, this similar to, to crown fire, this um, buoyant push, convective push of of heat uh, to the next building, and I was wondering uh, if this, if this, uh, what you observed at the wood creeps would actually translate to the larger scale. Right? Well, and you know that's an interesting application that I hadn't thought of, right? Because I I live in wildland fire land, so I was only really <laughs> thinking about applying it to wildland fires. But um, you know, I mean, that's the real hope is that what we learn about you know the processes can be applicable at you know different scales, right? And and understanding how how the ventilation plays a role, how the, you know, um, how that has a feedback with the way it burns. And, you know, that is a very interesting mm-hmm. application that, you know, I think that might be a, a worthy research project right there <laughs> to see. Yeah, and it's, and it's definitely super useful to anyone building a wood crib. Yeah, because you need to justify that in a paper somehow, right? Why well, I'm still burning wood cribs. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yeah. Don't, 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 don't get me started on justifying things in the papers. Actually, in, in your paper, I, I found this excellent uh, quote, and I'm going to read it up. And it was uh, for your experimental discussion. And I, I absolutely love it. And, and all the um, postdocs and students listening to the, this podcast, like, uh, take something to write and write it down. Though no particular experiment design scheme was followed, the fuel bed parameters were varied in an exploratory manner, probing for unexpected or nonlinear behaviors. Ah, oh, this is good. I like I'm gonna... breaking things. <laughs> I'm gonna, it's like, (laughs) it's like, uh, it's uh, the most scientific way for, uh, for writing. We guessed the the sizes because we wanted to see the the most varied, uh, set that we, we could. That's, that's, that is so, that's, that's actually priceless. And that's my take from the prep to this podcast. Um, okay. Last thing, um, I wanted to talk with you and it's also connected to the, um, to all the things that we've discussed. You're very involved in, in the uh, IFSS and namely in the group called Large Outdoor Fires and Built Environment. This I, I see this initiative as very valuable to the world of fire science. 
And uh, I would like you to introduce it to everyone uh, listening to the podcast. Maybe someone would like to contribute or participate in it because I think it's worth it. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. So, so the history of this went back to the IFSS symposium in Lund. Um, we had, uh, we were invited, um, so Sam Manzello and Sayaka Suzuki and I are, are the co-leaders of this working group. And, um, mm -hmm. Sam was invited to lead a workshop prior to the uh, symposium on the large outdoor fire, um, topic because it's become, obviously it's becoming a more and more pressing issue, right? It's, it's affecting people worldwide. Um, and so we had this great workshop with a lot of interest from people. And then uh, IFSS invited us to make it into this permanent working group. And so the idea is that we can bring the entire fire protection engineering community um, together to kind of work on problems of, of large outdoor fires. And when we say large outdoor fires, we're talking about wildland fires. We're talking about wildland urban interface fires, urban fires and informal settlement fires. Because, okay. I mean, the reality is, is at this point, any single fire can be all four of those, right? It could start in the wildlands, right. spread to a community, whether that is a traditional built community or an informal settlement. And then those structures can then ignite other structures and become an urban fire. Yeah, and it includes like uh, management of communities and also the management of emergency procedures, right? Uh, right. Firefighters. So, I mean, obviously we're tasked with this huge group uh, or a huge yeah. topic, right? I mean, that's large outdoor fires in the built environment. So we kind of had to identify, you know, sort of some priority topics. And so we've broken the, the working group into three subgroups. So we have one on ignition resistant communities that's looking at some of the the, the thought and the standards and the exposures that a, a structure will ex experience. They're also looking mm -hmm. at and looking at uh, mitigation strategies for preventing that. And that, you know, can range from, um, you know, ways of, of building and constructing informal, informal settlement fires, but it can also include doing things like fuel treatments out on the wildland fire, right? Um, this is where my passion comes in is, you know, you can harden your structure all you want, but if you've got a super intense crown fire coming at it, it's going to be much more difficult to harden that structure than if the fire was a much more tame, you know, surface fire, right? So if you can yeah. reduce the exposure, then you can, you know, have a much higher survivability chance. Um, of course. So, so that's one of our subgroups. Another subgroup is the emergency management and evacuation subgroup. So that's looking at you know, how do we evacuate people? How do we manage um, the, the warnings and getting people out and, you know, looking at case studies of where we've been oh, yeah. successful, where we haven't, and some of the lessons that have been learned. The, this will be a podcast episode, I'm sure. This is uh, such a yeah. such an interesting topic, how to actually manage community-wise. So you remove people in the perfect time and you convince them they need to leave. Right even though the fire is not at their footsteps. Right. Because when it is, it's too late, right? right. It's difficult. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. this is a matter of, you know, warning people ahead of time. Uh, it's also, you know, looking at strategies for the, the routes to take, right? I mean, often there's more than one way of getting out, which is the most effective, which, you know, and how do you, do you phase evacuations or do you, you know, put a blanket call of everybody out? Um, you know, mm. so there's a lot of lessons learned too, um, that, you know, we're doing case studies of for all sorts of um, fires, but, you know, the uh, what we've learned from evacuating before hurricanes and stuff like that is, right. uh, you know, a source of, of information. And there's like, there's a lot of great people that are doing a lot of work on this. So I look forward uh, to an episode on yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have a guest in mind. Uh, I'll make it happen. Awesome. 
Um, and so the, the third working or third subgroup that we have is the large outdoor firefighting. So this um, subgroup is looking at sort of kind of doing a survey, some of the tactics that are used worldwide um, and mm-hmm. other things um, and some of the impacts of those tactics. Right. So sometimes there's you know, ecological impacts of, say, spraying everything with fire retardant. Um, and there's health impacts of the way we fight fires. But there's also, um, you know, one of the things that they're working on right now is a survey of um, UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, um, and how they're being used in, in firefighting um, at all, you know, scales of the fire. So, you know, looking at some of those tactics and seeing if there's any kind of way to sort of um, help kind of unify the way things are, are done. And and uh, the future looks bright in this field with the forecasting. And I had seen Huang in, in my podcast who was talking about the use of AI. And it also yeah. seems it could be promising for, for, for this. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely see these efforts of, of the group as very needed because the tac- the subject we're tackling is bigger than any of us. Like, yeah. It's bigger than your your agency is bigger than my institute. It's not something that a single person can solve. Like like Hotel said, it's next to life processes the most complex to be understood. And uh, I, I think uh, through collaborations like that, through workshops like held on IFSS, um, it it has certainly moved us a little bit closer into solving the issue and at least gave us the tools. I am very <laughs> lucky to be in both the IFSS research uh, subcommittee and uh, the workshop committee for the next IFSS. Okay. So uh, I'm I'm your supporter and I would love uh, LFBE to be a part of, of this uh, of this process because it's I think it's essential and uh, the way how it's held, like really getting people together yeah. to think about the subject, uh, separate into like subtasks, but in in let's say a democratical way, not prestige seeking way, not, yes. uh, you know, not necessarily competing about who will be the first to figure out how a retardant affects the, the, the environment, but right. working in a way together on pieces of the puzzle to, to figure out the whole image in the end. That is, uh, that is a fantastic uh, way to collaborate. And I think this, uh, this needs to be emphasized because we absolutely need more of that in fire science at every part of the fire science. Yeah. And the more the merrier. So it is it is free and easy to join. Uh, if you go to the IFSS website, we do have a website there uh, with joining instructions. It's a simple little Google form. You just add, get added to the mailing list, and then you'll hear about all of the work that we're doing. We also have our little monthly seminar series, so you can hear about that. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. I'll, I'll share the resources in the show notes because it's definitely worth to, to follow and then see for yourself, and maybe you can contribute in a way. So, Sarah, thank you very much for coming here. It was a huge pleasure to talk with you about burning things for living. It's uh, It has certainly been a lot of fun, and I, I hope the audience enjoyed that as well. Uh, maybe we, we have uh, armed someone to be a better incinerator, <laughs> hopefully not. Well, yeah, thanks again for inviting me. I also really had a good time, and it's, it's always fun to talk about burning things, like you said. Definitely, definitely. We're, we're going to do it uh, again when you solve the mystery of the length of the buoyant push yes. on, on the wildfires. <laughs> then then save, save some time for, for, for part two. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Wow, what a journey that was. The world of fire is really diverse and fascinating. For me personally, there are some practical takeaways from this talk. 
first I really have to watch out when I'm building my wood creeps and check these porosities and ratios of the scales of the of the wood creep because uh yeah it's a factor in the design and maybe it should be accounted for when we do compartment fire experiments with with wood creeps as our fuel that's definitely something to look more into and consider in the future experiments and also, as Sarah mentioned, it's quite important when you have standardized test methods that work with wood creeps, that you have to make sure the wood creep is built to the same specification every time you build it. Because some changes in the structure of the wood creep that will change how the air can enter and move through the wood creep, penetrate it, will change the fire behavior of it and essentially change the fire. So that definitely is uh, something to be considered when performing fire tests with wood creeps. And from the other things that were discussed, I think the one that fascinated me the most was the convective cooling of pine needles, where this convective push of flame was necessary to create the, the conditions for the ignition of this porous fuel. And uh, this is like truly unique because I'm so used to define critical heat fluxes at which things ignite or even temperatures at, at which an item will, will ignite in my simulations that uh, I, I wouldn't think it can work like that, that even at a very high radiant heat flux, you still may need this physical contact or or this hot air surrounding the item to, to ignite it, especially when we're talking about such a small item. So that was something definitely new to me and, and definitely very interesting. So I, I hope you like this twist in the podcast to, to move into wildfires a bit, because it's a, a pretty in, important subject. And even if you're not researching or, or working with wildfires, probably just as I am uh, in my family, you're probably the, fam the, the, the family fire person and you're probably ask a lot of these questions about the ongoing events in the world, the huge fires in the Mediterranean, in, in USA, on Siberia. And to know a little bit better, you'll be able to give better or more scientifically accurate answers and just spread these good practices of wildfire management and dealing with fires, because it seems we have to learn how to live with fires from now on. So thank you a lot for listening. And yeah, see you next Wednesday. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.